Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here at WERA 96.7 FM. I'm in the studio today with Kestrel Linder. Kestrel is the CEO and co-founder of GiveCampus. GiveCampus is one of the leading social fundraising and engagement platforms for nonprofit educational institutions. Thanks so much for dropping by today, Kestrel. Thanks for having me, George. Kestrel, why don't you just start by telling us about what GiveCampus is, how the idea came about, and what your mission is. Yeah, glad that you started with that question because we are very much a, a mission-driven company. Uh, Give Campus exists to help advance three things, the quality, the affordability, and the accessibility of education. So we are all about helping create a world uh, and a society where education is great, education is affordable, and education is accessible. We do that by helping schools raise more money, from more people at a fraction of the cost of other and more traditional fundraising methods. Uh, we just turned four years old, actually, last week. Congrats. Uh, thank you. And uh, our company now supports more than 660 educational institutions in 47 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and a handful of foreign countries. Uh, we're one of the largest online platforms for charitable giving in the world. And a big part of our long-term vision and one of our long-term goals is to help drive what we hope will be an historic increase in philanthropy for education over the next two decades. Who are you working with? Are you working with alumni departments? Are you working with the offices of outreach? Like who basically do you have everything set up through? Yeah, it it, it varies at schools depending on how big they are, whether they're public or private. But the vast majority of colleges and universities and most uh, private or independent K-12 schools have a fundraising office. Um, and that office typically also is responsible for alumni affairs and alumni relations. So the same folks who are helping to organize a reunion for your alma mater, uh, working in an office, or might be the actual same people who are also working to engage alumni and parents and other constituents at an, edu- at an educational institution to make a philanthropic gift. Gotcha. So it's a lot of the development folks that are really kind of there to get get money coming into the universities. That's right. Depending on the school, the office is typically development or advancement. Those are the two most common uh, nomers for this. When you're looking for the schools that you want to work with, are you looking for schools that you know maybe have limited endowments? Are there, are there certain kind of criteria you're looking at? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we actually don't do a a tremendously large amount of outbound sales uh, and outbound marketing where we're looking to attract uh, or target a particular school or type of school. Um, That may change in the future, but but the vast majority of our sales and marketing is driven by word of mouth from schools actually talking to one another. Um, And we treat every inbound lead, every school that reaches out to us with the same level of priority because 
we want to become uh, a fundraising platform, not just for the 300 uh, wealthiest institutions in the country, but for the 3,000 institutions after those 300 that uh, need the same resources to, again, deliver high-quality education, make it affordable, make it accessible. Uh, I would say that one of the things we're most proud of at this inflection point in our company's growth is actually how diverse our community of schools is. Uh, of the 660-plus schools we're working with, we work with a number of Ivy League universities. We work with my alma mater, Johns Hopkins. Uh, we work with some great small liberal arts colleges. We work with community colleges and junior colleges and technical colleges. And we also work with a few hundred schools at the K-12 level. Um, so public, private, big, small, uh, every shape and size you can imagine is represented in our community. And that's important to us uh, because we believe uh, that it's important that whether you want to get a two-year degree at a community college or you want to get uh, a bachelor's, master's, and PhD from Harvard, we believe it's important that that education be there and that it be accessible and affordable for you. So now you're considered a, a social fundraising platform. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What is social fundraising management? Yeah, I don't know if we coined the term uh, five years ago or if somebody else did, uh, but the idea behind what, what we mean when we say social fundraising is that fundraising, and, and fundraising when you're a donor means philanthropy. You're the person making a philanthropic donation, whether it's to your school, uh, your child's school, or another nonprofit that you care about. Uh, in our view, philanthropy by and large, has become far too impersonal and far too transactional for most people. For most people like me who are being asked to give $100 or $500, I'm not getting a very social and engaging experience as part of that solicitation for my, for my charitable dollars. Um, and that's part of the reason we started the company. We wanted to try to make philanthropy just as engaging for me giving $100 or $500 as it might be for someone who's giving a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. Those donors with capacity at those levels are provided with a lot of personalization. Uh, they get to know that person. They learn what that person cares about. They talk to that person about the impact that their charitable dollars will have at the school. When you only have the capacity to give 50 bucks or $500, uh, if for no other reason than resources, schools typically don't have the ability to place as much emphasis on developing a relationship with you, on making the experience truly special for you. By social fundraising and bringing this entire uh, industry and activity of philanthropy online, we're trying to create an environment in the digital space where making a $50 gift can feel just as personal as making a $500 million gift. That's interesting that you say that too, because it seems like there is kind of a different standard uh, for people that are able to afford donating a whole wing to a university versus somebody that's able to maybe, you know, maybe they just graduated and they can only contribute maybe 5 to $10, maybe $25. That level of access is a little bit different too. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to their feeling of engagement or attachment to the institution. Absolutely. And I, and I think one of the, one of the things that everybody knows in this industry is that People don't wake up in their 60s and start writing million-dollar checks to nonprofits and, and educational institutions. That's, that would be a, a strange anomaly. Um, by and large, people who give large amounts 
are people who have been giving consistently in most cases for decades. You know, my my favorite case study of all from my alma mater is Michael Bloomberg, who's now given Johns Hopkins University, I believe, over a, a total of three point three billion dollars in his lifetime, uh, including a, a recent gift last year of one point eight billion dollars, which I'm told is the largest single charitable gift to an educational institution ever. Mr. Bloomberg's giving to Johns Hopkins began the year after he graduated, several decades ago, and it was a $5 gift. He gave again for the next several years, and most of his gifts were $5, $10, $25. It wasn't until much later in life when this habit of giving back to Johns Hopkins was ingrained in him as a person that he was able uh, and inclined to give massive amounts of, of, you know, make transformative gifts to the institution. And I think what we have seen in our industry uh, over the last two decades especially is underinvestment in those $5 gifts from recent graduates uh, because they don't provide transformative impact from a revenue perspective today. And part of what we're trying to do at Give Campus is provide technology that schools can use at a cost that's uh, reasonable for them to make sure that they aren't missing the boat with today's 22-year-old $5 donor because we know that 30 years from now, the next billion-dollar donor to any school is going to be one of those donors who started giving today five, ten, twenty-five dollars. It's interesting. So I actually worked with the alumni association for my university, it's George Mason University School of Public Policy, and at that time they didn't really have like the social aspect to it. But one of the things that they did do was they framed donations around different terminology. And one thing that we said is we wanted to have students invest in the school versus give to the school. We at least try to frame it as when you're investing in the school, you're investing in the growth of the institution, the name of the school, the reputation of the school. And I think it's really interesting because some years later now we've, we've started getting large donations in in recent years here. So how does that pipeline begin and why do people give to their universities? I think it varies person to person. Uh, you know, a lot of people give because they had a spectacular experience at their alma mater. You know, they loved their two or four or five or six years there um, and really believe in giving back to the organization that provided so much to them. I think that there's just a, a strong affinity that a lot of people have for especially their, the college or university that they attended. But what we're seeing uh, today, especially with millennials and post-millennials, is that affinity that many people have isn't trained, doesn't appear to be translating as reliably into philanthropy as it used to. So a lot of institutions that we work with are exploring, well, if, if the affinity that you feel for the institution isn't translating into philanthropy, what will motivate you? to make a charitable donation. And I think that's where we're starting. Why? One of the reasons why we're starting to see a shift in terminology that a lot of institutions are using, like you just shared, invest in the future, right? This idea of paying it forward, of investing your philanthropic dollars to unlock future outcomes for students. We also see some institutions that have shifted 
some of their communications and messaging to the concept of giving through an institution, you know, and thinking about how giving money, uh, making a charitable donation to a college, a liberal arts college, for example, um, you're not just supporting the college. What you're really doing is you're supporting the idea of a liberal arts education and of critical thinking in our society, which many people are, are you know, feeling we need a lot more of uh, these days. Uh, and I think that this shift in terminology is not insignificant in that fundraisers are storytellers and they're getting better at telling their story to today's population of potential donors. They're not there yet, but they're definitely getting better. So it seems to me like the fundamental issue that you're addressing is the generation that's graduating now from schools, they use the internet, they use social media, and they like that community aspect of how the internet works for them, which is different than getting a fundraising letter in the mail, some direct mail piece that's just an envelope that says give money. What's going on here? What, what does the future of philanthropy look like for education and academic institutions? Yeah, I think Part of what we're trying to drive is a greater awareness amongst fundraisers at schools for or of the world that today's emerging generation of prospective donors grew up in. So we talk about millennials and post-millennials and thinking about that world. If you were born after 1980, that means you've never known a world without personal computers. You've never known a world without mobile phones. You've never known a world without ready access to the World Wide Web. Uh, unless you uh, were you know, born in the very early or mid-80s, you probably don't really have many memories without Amazon.com or many memories without Google or many memories pre-Facebook and social media. And as a result of you know, those and many other technologies that, that people born after 1980 have really grown up surrounded by, they're a little bit different. They are a little bit different in terms of how they behave. They're a little bit different in terms of their preferences. And perhaps most importantly, they're uh, a little bit different in terms of what they expect when someone, some entity is trying to engage them. Uh, you know, they've grown up in an Amazon.com world where if you want to buy something, you can do it in a few seconds with just a couple clicks of your mouse or your thumb on your phone. So if you're asking them to make a charitable gift or to volunteer for your institution or organization, and they can't do it just as easily as they can buy something on Amazon, well, they're a lot less likely to do it as a result. So I think that technology is playing, uh, and the technology that surrounds us now is playing a very significant role in influencing, again, behaviors, preferences, expectations of people, you know, both born certainly after, but also a lot of people born before 1980. And those people are the future of philanthropy, both for education and other nonprofits. And I think what's instructive in, in realizing that is that we need to deliver experiences to those prospective donors that meet their expectations, that satisfy the preferences that they have. And the best way to do that is by asking ourselves, well, why has Amazon become Amazon? Why has Facebook become Facebook? And what are the lessons we can learn from those ubiquitous technologies to better engage people about philanthropy? So let's talk about the platform a little bit here, because the way it works, you basically can donate on your phone, you can donate on your computer. What 
what exactly is kind of the differentiating value between this and traditional fundraising campaigns? Like, I see that you have videos in there. Is this just kind of a grassroots way of, of getting people to contribute? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the the special sauce, uh, if you will, to, to the extent I'm willing to disclose it, is uh, is threefold, you know. And, and step one is it's modern and it's online. Right. And, and that in and of itself is a very significant change. Sure. Uh, step two is we've made it very easy. Uh, again, to reference Amazon.com, our internal goal as a company is we want to make sure that if you're a school using Give Campus, it's just as easy for someone to make a gift to your school as it is for them to buy something on Amazon.com. That's the standard we look to hold ourselves to. And again, that in and of itself turns out to be very significant because most more traditional uh, fundraising methods are just not easy. Uh, the third thing that we do is we look to bring, and this is why we call it social fundraising, we look to engage people in a social way by uh, harnessing the power of peer-to-peer engagement. And we do that in a variety of ways, providing tools to donors and prospective donors that make it very easy to not only give, but to encourage other people to give. This takes the form of sharing on social media, of sending text messages or emails, of uh, uploading a quick selfie video of yourself a la the Ice Bucket Challenge, where you're sharing with your friends and peers why you just made a donation and possibly, hopefully, asking them to do the same. Um, And I think that this social element is where we see, especially when we look at the data, a lot of the added lift. Uh, You know, it might be difficult to prove that by moving fundraising online, uh, we're providing uh, added lift. But when you look at the the capabilities that we deliver to schools for peer-to-peer engagement, it's obvious because we can tell that if I made a gift because George shared with me on Facebook using a tool that exists in Give Campus. We can say with some reasonable degree of certainty that I might not have made that gift if not for your engagement of me. Um, and that is what's really significant. So bringing it online, modernizing fundraising, making it easy, number two. Number three, incorporating peer-to-peer engagement as a core part of our platform. And you're tracking a lot of the engagement too, right? And, yeah. and sharing that data. Yeah. One of the one of the coolest things we've done from a from a technology standpoint um, is, uh, you know, as, as we built Give Campus four years ago, uh, four and five years ago, we really were looking at other digital fundraising platforms, uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, uh, you know, probably the three at the top of the list, which have been so successful in other industries and really revolutionized the funding model in other industries, but don't really tailor themselves to nonprofits and certainly not to educational institutions. And one thing that we felt was missing um, on all of those platforms were tools that allowed someone who is taking the extra step of encouraging a friend or a family member or a peer to make a gift, tools that help that person understand the added impact that they're having. So if I share on Facebook, that's great. But if I share on Facebook and I'm able to see that my sharing has helped drive three additional donations and bring in 300 more dollars, that's way cooler for me. So a lot of schools are now migrating their courses and coursework to being online platforms. How do you see education going forward when, you know, if you're a traditional student, you go to a campus and, and you're taking classes there, you you might naturally have that affinity because you're there in person. But how does that affect things going forward when a lot of educational content is offered online? How, how do you get people to really create that relationship with their school? 
Yeah, I, I think that the 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 move toward more online education is absolutely going to present challenges for schools for the reason you just described. Uh, you know, we already see working with schools that are commuter schools where students are not living on campus even for one year that they challenge. And, and there is a struggle to, I think, figure out what someone's affinity is and therefore uh, what message will resonate with them when you're asking them to give. Um, It's a little bit easier if you had a captive audience on campus for one or two or three or four years. A lot of bonds were established that are relatively easy to identify. But if everyone is now spread out all over the world taking courses entirely remotely online, a lot of those traditional affinities that you see either won't be there or won't be as easy to tap into. So I don't know how schools are going to address that challenge. I don't think it's a problem that's staring them in the face today because, again, the shift, the move toward more and more online education is really just underway, I believe. Uh, But certainly 5, 10, 15 years from now, a big question is going to be, okay, for that population of students who never stepped foot on our campus or only stepped foot on our campus intermittently and certainly didn't live on campus ever, where does their affinity lie? Um, And I I think there will be an answer to that question, a solution. I think it will really uh, be focused around, I would predict, focused around the outcomes that that education helped that person accomplish. You know, So even though you didn't live on campus for four years and you were 5,000 miles away, halfway around the world, taking our courses online, thanks to the education you received from our institution, you were able to accomplish X and Y and Z in your life. Give back or pay it forward to help tomorrow's students do the same thing. Let's talk about your own personal path as an entrepreneur. You originally started out, you were working in uh, large enterprise organizations. You were at Booz Allen. You were at Khaki. Talk to me about how you decided that you wanted to strike out on your own and become an entrepreneur. And uh, tell me about the relationship with your co-founder and how Give Campus this idea was born. So uh, I, I had a, a almost decade-long career prior to Give Campus. Um, and as you mentioned, I worked for some, some very large companies in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I was consulting with the defense and intelligence communities here in Washington, so a, a popular industry in this area. So something entirely different <laughs> uh, to, to what I'm doing today. Um, and I, I reached a point where uh, I was excited about the idea of starting something my own. Um, I was fortunate in that I had a very close friend from college, uh, a guy named Mike Kong, who's now my co-founder, who at the time was a senior software engineer at Facebook, uh, who was feeling, uh, having some of the same thoughts and feelings. Um, and we began a conversation in 2013 about Mike leaving Facebook and me leaving uh, at the time Booz Allen Hamilton and what might be next and maybe we'll start a company and maybe we'll start a company together and we were sharing ideas with one another uh, about you know uh, startups uh, and and problems that needed to be solved and maybe the solutions to those problems uh, and we had a lot of bad ideas uh, <laughs> which I won't share today um, and and what happened is as we were having that conversation. We also started having, in parallel, a conversation about um, our personal philanthropy and specifically our lack of philanthropy to our alma mater. 
Um, Wait, your lack of philanthropy? Our lack of philanthropy. Wow, okay. Um, and what we realized is uh, we had great affinity for our university. Um, we were both capable of giving back. We both believed in education and that educational institutions were both worthy and needy of private philanthropy. Um, in other words, neither of us had any good reason not to be giving back to our alma mater. And what occurred to us is we weren't giving back by and large because it wasn't easy enough and it wasn't fun. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Um, and around the same time, my wife is a documentary filmmaker, and she was running a campaign on Kickstarter to help fund a documentary that she was working on. And as Mike and I were having this, again, sort of two parallel conversations, maybe we'll start a company together, and why aren't we giving back to our alma mater if we can and we would like to? Uh, we saw my wife run this Kickstarter campaign, and, and it was one of those moments where uh, – you realize you might have just identified a solution to a really big problem. And the solution wasn't to just do what Kickstarter was doing, but the solution was to, in the same way that Kickstarter was making it easy for people to support my wife and her film and making it fun for people to support my wife and her film, maybe we could make it easy and fun for people to support their alma mater. Because for us, it seemed that there was something pretty badly broken if two 30-year-old guys with no student debt who were both inclined and capable of giving back to their university weren't giving, it struck us that there was probably a problem there worth solving. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I think that's how a lot of innovation happens is you just realize that something is not working and you have to figure out what the reason is and then how you can tackle that problem. So it sounds like it just very kind of naturally kind of arose during the conversations you had with your co-founder where uh, this just became like the next thing that was like a no-brainer to solve, right? Absolutely. I think that, you know, uh, one of the reasons I joked earlier about, you know, our bad ideas is in some ways we were searching for problems, uh, you know, and so it's not that we had bad ideas, but they were concocted out of a desire to find something to fix. With what eventually became Kiv Campus, we were actually just diagnosing a problem that we were experiencing personally, that we had – it was directly impacting our lives as non-donors to our alma mater. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons uh, that, you know, our, the, the, the general idea behind our product has resonated so powerfully with schools is it was built by two guys who wanted it to be easier and wanted it to be more fun. And if it was easier and more fun, they would give. And it turns out that's the truth for a lot of people. Kestrel Linder, thanks so much for dropping my day today. Thanks for having me. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode, and thanks for listening.